This is a Radio 191 FM podcast. It's the Radio 191 FM breakfast show with Candice. And right now, she's talking to... I am chatting to, hands down, one of the biggest legends right now. She did her PhD basically on my bread and butter electronic music here in Aotearoa, navigating the realms, both the production side of things and the living and breathing essence of electronic music. Dr. Sharon McIver, how are you doing this morning? Uh, Kia ora, Candice. Well, um, I think that's probably one of the loveliest introductions and... um, Possibly hyperbolic, but <laughs> um, no, thank you very much. Legend, I don't think I've been called that before, so um, that's a lovely intro. Thank you. Oh my gosh, you absolutely should be. Uh, so <laughs> for those of you who are not familiar with Dr. Sharon McIver, please give us a rundown of why you're here chatting to us today. Um, well, I'm here because I'm now writing for the Audio Culture website, um, first and foremost, but That comes on the back of, so in the 1990s, I worked as a music reviewer for the Christchurch Press. Um, That kind of inspired me to go to university. Um, Weirdly, I got the job music reviewing without any kind of degree or (laughs) anything as you could back then. And so I went to university, did an English literature degree, and then one of my lecturers suggested I do a PhD on Aotearoa music because of my work at the press. And so around about the time when I started, which was 2002, was when the electronic scene was going off. Mm. And I'd been to a couple of gatherings by then and was was sort of already part of the dance culture around that. And it just seemed, because I wanted to argue um, that what makes Aotearoa music different, and not just in the electronic scene, but also in some of the more rocky kind of stuff, is that the landscape is, is the ultimate influencer and that's what gets in and so the electronic scene was just perfectly suited to arguing that so I was able to kind of hone it down to that Um, but by the time I finished I think in 2006 or 7 that had gone off as well you know I worried at the beginning that there wouldn't be enough acts for me to look at and at the end I was having to apologise to people because (laughs) it hadn't made the final cut so yeah it it was a really special time 100% and exactly like you said with the landscape surrounding a lot of you know music in New Zealand and of course in the in your thesis electronic music it really is dependent on the physical environment it's a massive privilege that we have here in New Zealand we have the opportunity to host music in these physically beautiful spaces and one thing that you have written about obviously in the past but now on the audio culture website is the raves in the South Island other people you may know this as a classic bushduff here in New Zealand but for, for now we're calling them the raves of the Waipunamu tell us a little bit about this article that you've written for audio culture um yeah well it sort of came about first of all I did an article on 10 instrumental tracks and then um I noticed that on audio culture there'd been a few articles about like dance floor stompers of the 80s and the Auckland club scene and, and things like that. And I thought, oh, I could do a dance zone, you know, thing on some of the best dance zones. And so, um, yeah, it just came out of that because they were, when I contacted Audio Culture, they were instantly really interested because mine's quite a niche area that not so many writers are, are maybe writing about. And so, yeah, when I said that I'd, I'd gone to over 
I think I went to around about 60 or 70 dance parties, as I called them. Um, I didn't use the term rave so much back then because there was still that kind of application of it being really about the UK, quite, you know, really quite grimy sort of raves by that mm. point. Mm. Not in the music sense grime, but, you know. Yeah. Like, the <laughs> UK was having raves and things like old abattoirs. <laughs> and, you know, they didn't have the beautiful spaces we did. Mm-hmm. And the thing for me that was really interesting was that it was Te Waipanamu that this culture really went mental. And, you know, when you look at the coldest part of the country to go outside <laughs> and rave in. And we were like, yeah, go on then. <laughs> and, and so, you know, like, yes, there were um, North Island raves, but the scene was so much bigger down here. And, and, and partly because of the early ones um, in train and the gatherings, of course. So, so it was a really easy sort of thing for me to look at. I had to hone it down because, of course, there's so many. And so the ones I focused on for that article um, were just the ones that were non-alcohol because that whole scene back then was about not, you know, like, yes, if you snuck your alcohol in and you got it past the the gate guys, then, yes, there was alcohol. But it was so minimal compared to what most out or most dance music events have now you know, there wasn't bars. It was, you had to be really discreet how you drank it. So that's how I honed it down to the ones that were really kind of volunteer led because we were doing it because we loved it and they weren't focused around alcohol. So there's a lot of people, I think, um, on the Facebook page saying, oh, you know, there's no fat party. There's there's no this, there's no that. And it's like, well, that's because they had bars. And Mm. that for me, because I was researching it, really changed the whole feel of the culture. Mm -hmm. It it became something quite different when you threw, um, you know, licensed uh, bars and things into the mix. 100%. And I think that, exactly like you're saying, it made festivals very commercial in that sense you know like I I say the word festival because they very much became festivals instead of this sort of party that you'd just attend of course I think you know club culture and electronic music in particular but just music in general these days it has become coexistent with drinking culture which is obviously a very prevalent topic here in New Zealand how have you found the introduction of alcohol to these types of parties to have an effect obviously it's when the introduction of bars came in makes it more of a commercial scene but I think even still with the you know bush parties that we're seeing today they are often BYO so what sort of effect do you think that has well, I don't know. I mean, as somebody, I worked with the massive crew in um, Canterbury for years. You know, certainly all the years that I was doing this thesis, that was kind of my crew that I helped out at pretty much four parties a year. And I picked up all the rubbish afterwards. And what I found really interesting was that by picking up litter at the end of an event, it became a whole new scene of research for me that I wasn't planning to do and which I really wish I didn't have to do mm. because I was trying to argue that those spaces were really utopian and that we could get out of the city for a few days. And there's something called um, the Taz by a um, writer called Harkin Bay, B-E-Y. And 
it's called the temporary autonomous zone. And I liked the idea of the temporary utopian zone that we were taking. So the temporary autonomous zone is something that is only meant to last for a short amount of time. It can be like protests, things like that, but all the rules are outside of normal society and the rules operate in that zone. And for me, the dance part is we're very much, we're not drinking. Mm. We are being more tolerant of other substances, which you can't get if you're operating within the rules of society. Um, And that, for me, brought a whole new different space because the gathering going to something, you know, that I was already, um, oh, God, how old was I when I finally went to the gathering? I must have been around about late 20s, 30 by the time I got to the gatherings. And so, you know, I'd spent all that time going to clubs that were really alcohol-based and and things like that. And then suddenly I'm there with 10,000 people who are beautifully, colourfully dressed Mm -hmm. and coming from (laughs) black wearing or tatahi, um, you know, and just the variety of people and the inclusion and the diversity and the no alcohol. Mm-hmm. And, you know, okay, you could go to the trance zone and laugh and, and work out what people were on what drugs because of the way <laughs> they were dancing. But, and there was alcohol because people still managed to get it passed. But it was so discreet, you know. It wasn't the the focus of the party. Mm. The music and the dancing was. And if you weren't dancing, then people were kind of, you know, if you never got up and danced the whole party, then you'd probably have everybody giving you a wide berth because they assumed you were an undercover. So, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that is the difference. And now if I go to something that's really alcohol-based, it just doesn't have the same buzz for me because that was my introduction to the whole dance culture scene, really. I think that you've completely had it on the nose there. You had a sentence there where you were saying that the parties back then, they weren't based on the alcohol, which I think is a really big part of why people think that alcohol and music coexist these days is because, you know, a lot of the times, especially the like the younger crews, not to be like eh, the younger crew, but the younger crews, they're kind of, they're drinking really early and they're going out and they're not really thinking about whether they're actually going to enjoy the music when they're out there, you know, they're just kind of like getting drunk and then the music's just there to keep them company while they're, you know, enjoying that high, which which works for some people, but it, like, you know, like you, when you're really about the music, that just doesn't really, it doesn't really rock your socks, you know? Look, if you're drunk, you'll drunk, dance to anything. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've just had a... <laughs> A, a memory of an, an academic conference I went to and everybody, it was held in a wine centre in South Australia. Um, and, and, you know, the party at the end of the conference and I was up finding everybody's going, when are you going to dance? I said, oh, well, there's something I could dance to. And finally mm. it was just like, oh, yeah, God, I'm drunk enough. I can dance to ABBA now. Because yes. um, <laughs> <you know? laughs> everybody knew that I was the dance expert and they were all expecting me to be on a dance and I'm like, not to this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, being a bit of a dance snob, but um, yeah, look, you know, I'm not not to take away. The thing is about the commercial events is so many events go under, 
because it costs so much money to put an event on. So you have to have the alcohol in there to make money. So not to denigrate those events because it's the only way that they can, and they then can pay because they're making enough money from the alcohol. They can then pay the musicians decent, you know, fees to come and do those events. So those events are incredibly important because they introduce you know, wider groups of people to that music and keep the industry going. Because with streaming now, of course, they can't sell the hard copies as much as they used to be able to. Um, And I know that touring is essential for them. So we still need those events. But, you know, for those of us who were kind of cut out teeth in rave culture, um, literally at the bush doofs, you know, like we were in the bush and we always had amazing views. And, you know, sometimes if it rained the whole place, you know, we had to shut down a drum and bass zone once at a a massive party because the rain just came down and came sliding in through the mud and took the whole zone out pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) And, And, you know, we ended up having something like, 50 or 60 metres of quagmire mud that everybody had to wade to get between the party and the and the um, campground. And I think somebody in the afternoon when we were setting up had gone into Rangiora, the nearest town, and bought up the warehouse's entire supply of red band gumboots just for the crew. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, you know, that was the difference that... The, the cost of putting them on was pretty much just we need a Jenny, we need some portaloos, we need um, a sound system. Massive was very fortunate in it owned so it owned sound system, and I still go to parties where that sound system gets gets hauled out to play. Awesome. Um, and so we were fortunate that we, you know, they had a, the guys had bought a sound system and. Gradually, everybody got more things that were useful for putting on the parties. So it became a real community-based thing. You know, back then, nobody was getting paid. Now, I do believe, especially around waste, because in the past 10 years, I've been running my own um, event recycling business, which I've now given up. But I was paying my crew to go and pick up wasted events. And I think it's if you're going to have a really big commercial event, then some of those jobs that are high health and safety risk should also, you know, you need it's a problem where volunteering is, is a bit of a murky thing. But again, mm-hmm. they kind of need the volunteers with those big events to run as well because it's so expensive in Aotearoa because of our small population. So there's a lot of – it's it's very complicated, but for me and I think probably any kind of Generation X listeners out there, those wonderful days of raves were just, you know, something amazing that we can never really get back Oh. Or maybe we can. Maybe maybe the generation that used to come to them with us as little kids um, <laughs> are going to put them on so that their parents can come out and um, party. Us little baby ravers, we'll hold it up. <laughs> we'll hold yes, it up. please do. <laughs> hey, I absolutely love your work. You are an incredible wealth of knowledge and you have conveniently collated two of the greatest things ever, which is Mother Nature and music, and written <laughs> two fantastic articles, of course. You are fantastic. Love your work. So fantastic to have you on Breakfast this morning. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, no, really, really enjoyed it, and thank you for those lovely big ups. Um, it's good, good start to the day, so enjoy your day, everybody, and hopefully I might get to talk to you again sometime. Oh, 
100%. What a legend. That was Dr. Sharon McIvan chatting about her articles, not only on audio culture, but guys, her thesis was on this. This is her bread and butter. She has written articles about instrumental tracks here in Aotearoa, as well as the 10 transcendent raves of Te Waipo Namu. What a treat. Hey, to give you a wee taster of the uh, the good old days, I'm playing you a track from the man-myth legend, there's actually two of them, Concord Dawn. This song is called Morning Light, released in 2003, which you will recognise as the timeline that Dr. Sharon McIver was highlighting for us. You'll know this track. It needs no introduction, but oh my goodness, it slaps every time. Stay tuned here on The One. I'm chatting to Lily Karen very shortly. Keep it locked. Thanks for listening to a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. There are heaps more at r1.co.nz.